everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. This is your host, April Hanna, and we are doing a special type of book club series. We are reviewing the book by Mark Manson, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And this episode, we are going to be taking a look at chapter four, The Value of Suffering. So in the beginning, he goes on to talk about a pretty long story about the war against U.S. and Japan and how there was this lieutenant Lieutenant Onoda, if I'm pronouncing it right, who basically wouldn't believe that the war was over and fought for like the next 30 years, even though the war was over. And he kind of became this mythical person in history. Some people didn't know if he really was alive or if it was just a legend. But um, what Mark likes to point out in this chapter is that here was this man that he was fighting and suffered for 30 years for a specific cause that he believed in and believed to be true. And then there was this other person who basically wanted to go on a quest to try to find this lieutenant. And he's known by the name of Suzuki. And he ended up finding this lieutenant to be actually a real human being and eventually got to tell him that the war was indeed over. And then this Suzuki character here, basically suffered to go through this hike and this, you know, hiking through the jungles to find this lieutenant. And he actually did. And then after he found him a few days afterwards, he ended up dying. So you can read more about this whole story in the beginning of the value of suffering in chapter four. But I want to kind of jump right into the point that Mark is trying to make on page 69. And he, he talks about that to both of these men, their suffering meant something to them. It fulfilled some some sort of greater cause, and because it meant something, they were able to endure the suffering and perhaps even enjoyed it. And if we're taking a look at life in general, what Mark is trying to say through this chapter is that we can't get around suffering, that their suffering is inevitable. And he says that the question that we should not be asking is, how do I stop the suffering, but instead asking yourself, what is it that you're suffering for? What's the purpose of my suffering? And to go even deeper, you know, what are you willing to suffer for in this lifetime? So when I sat back and started asking myself that question, what is it in my life that I have been or was willing to suffer through um, in order to get some sort of enjoyment out of it or to solve the problem like he talked in previous chapters that usually the joy and happiness is found after solving a problem. And I would say, in particular, my best example and easiest example would definitely be the businesses that I run with Path 11, doing this podcast, uh, the private practice that I have in mental health counseling, and then also now taking on the job and the challenge and the suffering of running a wellness studio and also being a healer. But to me, there is so much enjoyment in the suffering of trying to figure out what's the monthly schedule going to be? Um, You know, how am I going to get enough students to run this class? And um, looking at the suffering of knowing that I have bills to pay and being an entrepreneur and, and how does that work? But on the other end of what I do, to me, there's so much reward in it that the suffering really does feel worth it. I guess in some ways, like I really don't even feel like I work because I enjoy what I do, but also in enjoying what I do, there is some hard work to it. Um, 
There's no doubt about that. There are times when things are going much slower than I wish they would. Um, you know, I'd like to be kind of doing this maybe more full time, but the suffering of trying to transition one business over to the next takes quite a bit, you know, of a while. But in the end, to me, it would all be worth that. And I think that's part of the point that he was trying to point out when giving the story about Anoda and Suzuki. And then he also talks about in trying to understand the value of suffering that you also need to have self-awareness. And I think everyone has heard of the metaphor of the onion, the onion metaphor that in life we're just peeling back layers one at a time. And as we're peeling back the layers, we kind of get into our issues a little bit deeper and deeper and deeper and more things come to our awareness. And he talks about a couple of different layers in this onion, the first layer being the simple understanding of one's emotions. The second layer of self-awareness being the ability to ask why you're feeling these certain emotions. And then at another deeper level of the onion is our personal values. What do I consider this to be? Why do I consider this to be a success or a failure? How am I choosing to measure myself? By what standard am I judging myself and everyone around me? And I would tend to agree with him that, you know, before you can kind of get at the heart of that question, you really have to come in touch with your emotions. Now, with being in the mental health field, many times I'll have people come and sit down across from me and they'll say, I want to stop feeling this. I don't want to feel anxious anymore. I'm tired of being sad and depressed. Make these sad feelings go away. Don't want this. And usually in the teachings that I do here is that I'm trying to get people to not want to chase these emotions away, but to honor them, to take a look at them, to respect them, to see why they're here, not to stop them. Our emotions are not our enemy. They're our teachers. So I would agree with him in the self-awareness first step of that onion peel or that onion layer is that you really have to take a look at them and begin to understand them, begin to understand what are the things that make you upset, that make you sad, that make you happy, that bring you joy and enthusiasm. Um, and then the second layer of trying to figure out why you're feeling those emotions, right? So that makes sense. So this is happening and, and why am I feeling a certain way? But then he goes a little bit deeper into that third part about really trying to assess your personal values. And it's in that that it begins to affect how you're reacting to things emotionally. I liked on page 72 in the first paragraph, he said, our values determine the nature of our problems, and the nature of our problems determines the quality of our lives. He says, values underlie everything we are and do. And then he basically says that everything we think and feel about a situation ultimately comes back to how valuable we perceive it to be. So on page 73, he gives you an exercise and he says, take a moment and think of something that's really bugging you. Now ask yourself why it bugs you. And he says that the chances are the answer will involve some sort of failure. And he goes on to give an example of how in his life, he really wants to be closer to his brother. And he feels like he doesn't have a close relationship with his brother because his brother doesn't text him or call him a lot. And he's placing value on the communication with his brother, either calling him on the phone or sending him texts to equal a close relationship with family. And then he talks about how one of the things that are operating here is that this is a value 
that he holds dearly. And the metric that he uses to, ex- to assess the progress towards that value is texting and calling. So this is just a moment for you to self-reflect on some things of what, or I'm sorry, of what some of your values are and what are the metrics that you use to measure whether or not it's a success or a failure. Now, it's also interesting how he goes on to say that sometimes the metrics that we choose may be off, that maybe he's choosing a poor metric for himself with his brother. And then he talks about what else is it that could be true that he's not considering. And then on page 75, towards the middle of the page, he says, well, perhaps I don't need to be close to my brother to have that good relationship that I value. Perhaps there's just needs to be some mutual respect, and he says, which there is, and perhaps these metrics would be better assessments of brotherhood than how many text messages he and I exchange. And what I really see Mark doing there is kind of moving out of the details of the relationship with his brother and taking a look at the bigger picture and stepping outside of it that way. And then jumping over to page 79, third paragraph down. If you want to change how you see your problems, you have to change what you value and how you measure failure and success. So I think the point here of what he's trying to make the readers look at is obviously to assess your values. What are some of the things that you hold dear and true to yourself? And then what's the metric in which you're measuring the failures or success? And then I think the next step is, is this a good metric? Is this re- or is there a bigger picture? Like he says that maybe he could just define what brotherhood is and that there is a closeness with his brother, but it doesn't have to be based on this, this give and take thing of text messages and phone calls. So I'd just like you to question yourself a little bit in your life. What are the metrics that you use? And also notice if you have a pattern, if you have the same metric that you use to measure every failure and every success in your life. In the next section of chapter four, Uh, It begins on page 81, shitty values. And he lists a bunch of shitty values that basically cause more problems for people. The first one being pleasure. And he says, pleasure is not the cause of happiness. Rather, it is the effect. If you get the other stuff right, meaning the values that we were just talking about and the metrics, then pleasure will naturally occur as a byproduct. The second shitty value, material success. Well, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? If we're just basing our success off of the nice car that we have, the beautiful furniture, the clothes, things of that sort, all of that material stuff can be taken away in an instant. So I don't even think we have to go into that one. The third one, always being right. And he touched upon this on earlier chapters about... I think I was using more of the word of being humble, that if you're basing your self-worth on being right all the time, it's always going to prevent you from learning. Uh, I think a great approach and a great mindset is to say that you're always a student, that you're a student of life. How could we ever stop learning? I mean, to me, that's just not a concept that I can grasp. I'm really okay with, you know, admitting when I'm wrong or thinking like, okay, maybe I think this is a great idea that I'm sharing with this client or I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe they're really um, having issues with their anger. And then they say to me, no, I'm really okay with that. Um, And maybe it's something else. I'm okay and willing to say, okay, I got got that wrong, read that wrong. I think that there, there's so much growth that can happen in life if you're always looking at life through the eyes of being the student. Now, granted, you could still be a teacher, but my, um, my mantra is I just always try to stay about three steps ahead of my clients. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of them 
kind of share and bring to me some of the issues that I've already have been through. I think that's natural in this field that we tend to manifest the clients that will show us our own issues or our own problems. And I think it's because, you know, if you're doing the work that you need to do as a good therapist, you're working through those issues. So eventually you're trying out and, um, you know, passing and failing at different things that you're trying to solve things in your own life that you can then lend an ear to teach. But then you're also the student because I learned that my student, my students and clients teach me something all the time. Sometimes a client will come in with such a great awareness and I'm like, wow, that's awesome. And I might use that in another session uh, with another client to say, oh, you know, somebody, this sounds so familiar and somebody dealt with this problem in this way and this really helped them. So I feel like there's a constant sharing of ideas just in my field. And I never feel like I am the almighty and come to me, the therapist, and I will give you all of the answers. I really see it as being more of an of an exchange of a student teacher exchange. But, you know, my clients, I think are some of my best teachers as well. So the fourth shitty value going on number four is staying positive. And about midway down in this page on page 84, he says denying negative emotions leads to experiencing deeper and more prolonged negative emotions and to emotional dysfunction. Constant positivity is a form of avoidance not a valid solution to life's problems. I couldn't agree more with that. It's okay that we have bad days. It's okay that we're not feeling great. Um, it, I mean, if, if you ask anybody, they usually say, I would never change anything about my life because it's made me who I've become. And yeah, I think it's great to be positive and it's great to, you know, think more positively or if people are, you know, coming at you with situations or they're looking for some advice, sure, it's always great to try to be that person that is more of the glass half full. But at the same time, if you're walking around life just, what do they call it, Pollyanna with Pollyanna glasses on and just like, oh, life is absolutely perfect, then where is the contrast? Are, are they really open to learning if you don't have the contrast of things that aren't going so well? So I, I tend to think that people who claim to be that they are Mr. or Mrs. Positive all the time and nothing ever gets them down, I think they're fake. I don't think it's very authentic. Um, or you're just not human. I think it's okay to have negative emotions. And usually what I tell people is that I, what I have found the trick to be is when I get into some of my own slumps, I just try to get out of them quicker than I did last time. So I think for the most part, I do stay in a pretty nice space in life. Um, you know, feels pretty good. And I would say the works of Abraham Hicks really helped me to do this, that I try to find a better feeling thought when I go into darker spaces, when I go into anxiety or depression, and maybe in the past I could stay there for weeks, weeks on end, and maybe now it's three days at a time, and maybe some days I could shift that emotion or shift that negative thinking pattern in about an hour with some of the tools that I've learned. So I think the key is not so much to run away from negative emotions or not feel them, but it's to have shorter duration of time in which they're there. And if they need to be there longer, then to honor that. Okay, and now moving right along to page 86, he has a section on defining good and bad values. Good values are, one, reality-based, two, socially constructive, three, immediate and controllable. Bad values are superstitious, socially destructive, and not immediate or controllable. He also gives some examples of good healthy values being honesty, innovation, vulnerability, standing up for oneself, standing up for others, 
self-respect, and some examples of bad or unhealthy values would be dominance through manipulation or violence, feeling good all the time, always being the center of attention, not being alone, being liked by everybody, being rich for the sake of being rich. And he also makes the connection that bad values are generally reliant on external events. And when we find that we are having poor values, that usually is meaning, you know, in the term of his book, is that we're giving too many fucks about too many things. But if you start to narrow down um, and really try to focus on what these positive and better values are with these better metrics, then you're you're taking more time to really care about things and you're much more deliberate in the fucks that you give about is basically what he says on page 89. He says, when you give better fucks, you get better problems. And when you get better problems, you get a better life. And for the next chapters, as we're moving along, he begins to set up the rest of the book to let us know that he's dedicating the rest of the chapters to five counterintuitive values that he believes are the most beneficial values one can adopt. So we'll be taking a look at chapter five in uh, the weeks to come, and that is called You Are Always Choosing. So I hope this chapter four, The Value of Suffering, gave you something to think about, especially when you're assessing your values and the metrics in which you're giving to them. And I really love the fact that you guys are joining me through this journey. So it's great being with you today. I hope you have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening whenever you're tuning into this. And we will talk soon. Signing off.